0: And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 314, aka Year 7, Week 12, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, and we have a panel of people today. Go ahead and introduce yourselves, guys.
1: MC and... AS. Hey, yes. And...
2: JK. JK. All right. J- JK.
0: Good one. Good
1: one, JK.
2: Um,
0: is someone clinking glasses? Because that's going to be annoying if it continues briefly no What's okay good okay. all right uh we have a panel but we still do call-ins and soon uh, we ran some testing earlier today it failed so we are not quite ready for the clubhouse experience so for now 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301 that's 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301 um i'm gonna throw it over to you joe uh jk because I don't hear from you very often and I was told that you wanted to be on today. So what you got, what's going on, get your, get the word out.
2: Well, you know, uh, I, I still hear a, a fee- feedback or echo. I apologize about that. Uh, MC, do you have any comment? Oh, there it went away. Sorry. Sorry. That was my
1: headphones being up too loud.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I've been thinking about the Jones act. Um, and, uh, for listeners who may not know, the Jones Act is that shipping law, that the federal shipping law that basically affects um, U.S. ships and foreign ships and makes it so that only U.S. ships can bring goods between U.S. ports. And there's a particular argument, uh, at least in Hawaii, that people say um, if the Jones is a doomsday argument. But basically, they say if the Jones Act were repealed, then it would be a doomsday because um, Matson, the U.S. shipping companies would leave Hawaii and because foreign shipping companies would maybe service Hawaii, but maybe one day they'd leave because they don't like us. And then we'd have no shipping companies. Okay. And then the price of shipping to Hawaii would be like insanely high and it'd be just this doomsday.
0: Why do why do they think uh, Matson and the uh, domestic companies would cease operations? Like, what's the motivation for
2: that? Well, the foreign shipping companies um, can operate much cheaper, and so they would just undercut the cost by four or five times. Okay. And Matson wouldn't be able to handle that, and they'd leave the market.
0: Okay. And then eventually, you know, through some nefarious means or some you know foreign policy with those other foreign entities they go like well we're not going to service the u.s market anymore either and then hawaii gets abandoned that's the theory
2: yeah exactly it's like hey wait a minute these are chinese ships that are serving hawaii now we've got foreign companies and and china doesn't like us so maybe one day they would just say hey screw you guys we're out of here and then we'd have no one serving serving hawaii I mean that's the argument.
0: I mean it almost sounds laughable. I'm going to th- throw it over to you real quick KS because it seems like a a fundamental econ 101 type of problem where if there's no one serving a the market, there's an opportunity for profit and someone would enter the market.
3: Hundreds of ships like uh, hundreds of ships are being produced by America's allies in South Korea and Japan whereas only one or two ships are being produced in the United States and uh, oh we're making a correction here Um, so that kind of argument of saying that well we'd be dependent on China totally ignores our major military allies I mean we have thousands of troops stationed in South Korea and Japan in mutual defense treaties if we don't trust those countries to supply shipping for us at much lower prices then why are we bothering to have a mutual defense treaty where we have our soldiers by the thousands defending their soil it makes no sense yeah clearly there would be everybody from all over the world eager to do the shipping once they were allowed to
0: and that's kind of that's why i tossed it over to you it it seems like a non-starter for that to be like the best case argument for keeping the jones act around jk
3: Another thing that's ironic about that argument is that it says that these U.S. shipyards are essential to American interests, and yet two of those three shipyards building ocean-going vessels, a couple of them every year, um, two of those shipyards are owned by foreign countries, uh, by foreigners in other countries, in either Norway or Singapore. And, you know, what we're really doing is providing protection to foreign-owned shipyards.
2: And also, now, now this argument, it may sound really silly, but this is the, the current strongest argument of the U.S. shipping companies, the American Maritime Partnership, and all of the, the uh, insider Jones Act supporters say this argument to me. It's like, well, Joe, there, we got you, check and mate. You know, so there's no way to get rid of the Jones Act because of this problem. I mean, if if the foreign companies leave, if the U.S. companies leave, then we're sunk in Hawaii and the the price of shipping would just go through the roof. Yeah. I mean, we just
0: summarily dismissed that in like the first two minutes. So so what is wrong with these people that they don't understand that everyone abandoning uh, the market, if there's demand for for goods and services, that, that would be filled quite rapidly.
2: Yeah. And, and also you have to, I, my, the way I option shit is let's assume that the doomsday happens. Okay. The price skyrockets. Well, then what happens, right? Everyone sees the price goes up and says, Hey, I know a way to make a lot of money here. I'm going to service Hawaii and, and rake in those profits. And, and then we would have more competitors than ever.
0: Yeah. so so again what's what is wrong with these people because that's that seems like such an elementary concept um i can't it is hard for me to believe that people at the highest level lay that as the foundational argument on which they rest their case
3: the heaviest burden of this cost of of ships that cost five times as much to bring goods into hawaii than we could otherwise have Falls most heavily on Hawaii and Alaska, Puerto Rico and Guam, because we don't have the alternatives of um, of railroad and trucking to the mainland. Yep. Ironically, even flying cattle by air on seven forty seven jets is cheaper than sending it on Matson Jones Act ships to the mainland. The burden of this falls way disproportionately on people in Hawaii and Alaska, and only representing two percent of the country. And yet, if it's a national defense argument, they should say, well, the nation should pay for national defense, not the people of Hawaii and Alaska pay for the national defense. Sure. But there are ways that the mainland people uh, suffer enormous costs, too. To send uh, oil, a barrel of oil, from the Gulf Coast to New York costs three times more than to send it further to Canada. So the people in in, in the mainland are hurt by this as well. Plus, it directs a whole lot of our traffic, 98% of our traffic uh, for cargo, to trucking uh, on the roads, which then uh, increases the damage on roads, more deaths on the highways, more pollution, and more dependency on oil, as opposed to a much cheaper and more efficient alternative that could be uh, international ocean cargo.
0: Yeah. So again, it's, you know, for, for the companies defending the Jones act, it seems to be, uh, you know, pr- protectionism one oh one, right? They, they've Absolutely. got the good deal and they're not willing to let it go, even though they can't make a, a quality argument to, to maintain that status quo.
3: But they do make campaign contributions and well, there all of go. the, all of the politicians in Hawaii, Hawaii being hurt the most by this, yet all the politicians are in well, almost all. I'd say that... Um, um,
2: Actually, it's about half. I I went and looked. I looked at all the com- campaign contributions and about half, mostly in the state legislature, it, are, are p- paid off uh, by the shipping unions. Um, at the counties, though, the county politicians don't get any money, though, from the shipping unions because they don't have any power over this law.
3: But there's an irony, too. I think that the shipping unions, the longshoremen and so on, would have a lot more business if there was more traffic in the Hawaii, plus the unions that were associated with the sugar plantations that were all damaged enormously by this. they could, How could they compete by sending their sugar to the mainland with the Louisiana and Florida sugar that don't have these costs when they have to pay so much more for, uh, for cargo? I think um, the huge damage was to unions. And yet the union lockstep in support of each other tends to blind, be blinded to this uh, notion that, that, um, all workers are benefited by protectionism. So one of the things that, uh,
0: questions that comes up for me or, you know, question concern, um, is you mentioned like the lobbying money and one thing that seems to be, uh, principled amongst the libertarian ish crowd. Um, you know, though, those in the political sphere or just, you know, the, the freedom minded individuals. Um, I mean, here there's like sections where this is not necessarily the case, but it seems to be like a pattern that I've experienced is for some reason, this, um, this belief in poverty amongst libertarians, right? Like, you know, we, we can't get rich because then we give too much of our productive labor to the government. So we're just going to stay poor and below that line. So we keep the maximum amount of a very little bit amount of money. Um, uh, <clears throat> and I bring that up because if it's, if it's lobbying money, right. Just, you know, throw more money than them at it. Right. And if, if money solves problems, then make more money and, you know, lob, out lobby the, the current Jones act lobby and get it changed. No,
1: that's that's my solution. Yeah. That's well, that a is a point. puzzle. Go
2: ahead, that's, Joe. That's a good point because um, the it, on the national level, the con- congressmen get um, a collectively maybe two million dollars from the shipping industry, um, and the state level they get another million collectively. So we're talking about three million dollars annually to keep the jones act in place um so yeah that how much does it cost to buy a politician
0: i don't know um, but if you figure out that number problem solved I mean, that's yeah that's you know it's it's one of the pretenses that gets dropped in a lot of foreign countries right like you know bribery is part of the game Wh- whoever has the most money sets the rules there right and there's there's no um, pretense of legitimacy there necessarily right? Like how do you get out of a speeding ticket in Mexico and you just pay the cop, right? It costs you 20 bucks to, to go as fast as you want. There's as an this uh,
3: school of economics called public choice theory that argues that there's a concentrated interest on the benefits uh, to certain special interest groups, but it's diffuse among the ones who pay for it, taxpayers and consumers. And that works really, really against this notion because those who benefit by it really know they benefit by it and so they have a high motive to concentrate their their campaign contributions but we as consumers for for the most part you ask people what's the what do you think of the jones act most people 99% of the people you ask won't even know what that means even if you explained it to them they would say what a a, a penny for a loaf of bread of sugar and a little a little bit more for for this or that i mean i have bigger issues on my mind you know? And so they yeah. are going to devote their energies to something that's more important to them. Well, they only I, get one vote every four years.
0: I would like to, again, suggest that that is a failure, um, on li- libertarian politicos, right? Because as a communicator, it is your job to make that connection for them. Right? Like you, if you, if you're just, if you walk up to someone on the street and you spout off statistics about the Jones act, they're not going to care because they have, they they don't see how they are vested in that. Right. So a, a, a good, you know, technique for sales and also in this political sphere, right. Is making that connection for the individual where they can see how they are being harmed by this and how changing it would, you know, increase their value significantly, uh, Without without bogging them down with you know numbers and statistics and and factoids, right? Which well, again, I think part of the are really is, good about.
1: is that it's not significant of a number, number to them, and so you could say that uh, shipping increases the cost of living in Hawaii by ten percent or something, and is ten uh, percent enough to get somebody off their butt and uh, go? You know. Uh, you know, uh, shut down the government or something over, you know. No, but if you said, how would
0: you like to see $2 for a gallon of milk? Right. That might, you know, like I would like to see $2 for a gallon of milk.
3: But they're not going to pay $100 if they see only a benefit of $2. Sure. But again. And and so there's, there's a, a rational, I mean, people are behaving rationally. They, they say, well, I'm, I'll put in the effort to the extent that my contribution is going to have a benefit to me. Yeah. The shipping company, uh, you know, a, a $10,000 campaign contribution can get a million dollars in benefits to the Jones Act. But for a, a consumer or a bunch of consumers, a bunch of libertarian consumers, maybe they, they campaign. You know how hard it is to campaign and, and draw raise money for a campaign. Maybe they raise $1,000 it takes a tremendous amount of effort to do so. And their benefit is very obscured. It's spread among the whole population and, and hard to identify that they're benefiting. From it.
0: Sure. But if you go, if you go like, you know, how would you like to see $2 gallon of milk? Right. And you know, uh, that's basically an $8 swing per week, right? $10 for a gallon of milk. Someone posted like a picture of Hawaii. That's, that's recent. And that's what I remember my mom paying for a gallon of milk. It's about $10. And I don't know how much that's changed since I moved. Um, but if you can get that down to two, right. And someone buys a gallon of milk a week, you're saving them 400, you know, over 400 bucks a year. And again, like, all we need is a hundred dollars up front. Right. For if you and all of us get together and we each pitch in a hundred dollars, you will get that back within year one. If we can get this law changed.
1: Yeah. And that, that kind of was my uh, proposal was to have a, a, a fundraiser or a crowdfunding to end the Jones act. Um, but, It's it's kind of hard because you'd have to trust somebody to take that responsibility, and 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 even then, there's no guarantee of success. So, let's say they raise a million dollars, is a million dollars enough to pay off the politicians? No, because
0: you already said it was three.
1: Yeah, you know, like four to six. Okay, so we'll we'll do a crowdfunding for ten million. Go for it. And if if we come up with that much money, does the the Jones Act uh, beneficiaries uh, do they come up with twenty million? You know, so it's like it's one of the things that even if you come up with the money, uh, you, it might not be enough. You don't know. Sure.
0: But I mean, again, that's, you know, that's the game of political influence, man.
2: Well, there's well, another school of uh, economic. I think it's called the John Baker School or something. But they were they say you should pay off the politicians with taxpayer money. So if you could somehow you know, re- repeal the Jones Act, but pay off the Jones Act lobby with billions of dollars of taxpayer money, then it's like a deal with the devil, but it would work.
3: Okay. Well, it's a, it's a, I think, a, a clever notion, but I think that it's ultimately wrong to do so uh, because I think that those very same politicians who figure out a way to benefit by that are also clever enough to find ways of then taking that and adding it to the benefit that they get from other things. It's like uh, Milton Friedman says, uh, anytime the government says, well, we're going to raise the tax over here, don't believe that they're going to lower the tax somewhere else. They're going to put them both on.
0: Sure. But they're all, they're also motivated by personal gain and profit, right? So if if it's a one-time payment, maybe they don't swing in your favor, right? But if the, you know, if you, if, if they don't swing it in your favor and they know that they're not going to get any more campaign contributions from you, maybe they're more likely to swing it in your favor so that next year, you know, you do another round of fundraising for them, right? It's it's the, the yeah, I, continuous back
3: scratch and it's part of the game. I just don't like, uh, contributing to a system that rewards the corrupt officials, you know, okay. he's a corrupt official and you say, well, we'll pay him off so that he'll be on my side the moment. And he just waits. Until, yeah, it's and kind of, more of powerful.
2: Pandora's box. And I was, I was talking to a shipping union guy who actually agreed with me. He, he works for Matson, but actually agrees with me that the Jones act is a bad idea. And he said that one way to do it, he said the, the unions and the, and the companies actually, they don't like each other you know it looks like they're all working together to get along but actually they are they don't like each other the unions are afraid of uh, automation and they know that one day automated ships are going to make their jobs totally uh, are going to replace their jobs and so what they want most of all is a protection that says if you ship goods between US ports, you have to use human beings and not robots. And if you do that, then we'll get rid of the Jones Act or something. Okay.
3: Okay. We could propose in a corollary that then they shouldn't allow steam or diesel or powered uh, motors on the ships. They should be rowed here because that will take a lot more workers if they use oars instead of <laughs> propellers.
2: That's, That's a good point. That's chapter one of Jonathan Gullible. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was I also think,
0: like a Milton Friedman or something, you know, going to China and go like, Oh, this, you know, they, they were, you know, uh, digging trenches or whatever. And, you know, said something like, well, give every, this is a jobs program. Give everybody shovels, give right? everybody spoons. Yeah. So, I mean,
3: I hear what you're saying. So you're, I think the best way to attack this would be to relabel it the the Matsa Monopoly Law instead of the Jones Act. Nobody, nobody, you you feel like you have to. You've got a mountain of explanation when you have to explain to people the Jones Act, which sounds sort of neutral. It's a mother pie and apple, you know. Uh, What you really want to do is call it what it is. Get people referring it to something that people just normally repel against. That's a monopoly law. Yeah, I I think that's an
0: excellent suggestion or, because again that or, ties it into what they can understand.
3: Starving the cakey's law, because there you go. by making the food expensive, children can't afford to eat. So starving the cakey law, that's brilliant,
0: KS. Because what uh, what do all politicians do? Right, it's like for the for the for the children or for the elderly. Yeah. So if you if you can if you can successfully spin the narrative in that manner, right. Mm-hmm. Then go for it. I don't know I don't know why that's not already being done
2: yeah and if you if you did a survey of uh, people in Hawaii on the Jones Act, um, it's about sixteen seventeen percent that have actually heard of it, and those that have heard of it don't like it, so basically everyone who knows about it doesn't like it um, yet all our politicians are begging to keep it in place um I think. There is a tipping point there if if uh, it was labeled the right way,
0: yeah I mean that, again i'm I am when it comes to the the realm of politics, right I am tactically amoral, right <laughs> because everyone else is and you're not gonna win if you if you if you attempt to adhere to some grander code in my opinion, right So when it comes to like those surveys if, if it were me, right. The, the, the fact that it's the Jones act would be like the aha reveal at the end of the survey. Right. Well, you know, all, every, everything leading up to that would to make them hate the idea of what you're proposing. And you go like, well, this is the Jones act. Right. And like, ha, huh, kids are starving. You know, every, everyone's paying more for food and goods and whatever. And you know, you, you don't like any of that, right. You want, you want the kids to be fed. You want everyone to, you know, be able to get goods and services for a relative, or at least goods for a relatively low cost. Um, sounds like we're on the same page, right? So how about you support us in getting rid of the Jones Act? And then they went, what? Like, yeah, every all the, all the problems that we just went through is because of this one thing. And, we, you know, if we can get rid of that, most of this goes away, at least in theory.
2: So yeah, it's, it's I, lying with I think, statistics. I think also... Uh, MC's uh, uh, comment about Waking the Beast is good. I mean, in the 90s, the people who were against the Jones Act formed the Jones Act Reform Coalition to try to get rid of it. And in response, the shipping unions formed the American Maritime Partnership. And millions of dollars flowed into the AMP and almost no money flowed into the to the Jones Act reform coalition <laughs> yeah. and yeah. so today that that coalition doesn't exist anymore they are gone they've disbanded yeah. but the American Maritime Partnership does exist and so all it all that did is give birth to you <laughs> know uh, the great wall of uh Jones Act
0: so so relaunch that program right as the feed the cakey's coalition and who who could possibly be against that yeah, what that's is so what much is with this big reform. international? The
3: word reform just sounds like, well, we're going to, you know, um, repaint it and 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 yeah, you know, carve off the rough edges. But but there's something fundamentally good about it. Yeah, that's always a troublesome. I I know that uh, the the Grassroots Institute's uh, has been in a uh, quandary about how how you know who who how far can you go on this? But I think that it's a really good idea to. Uh, to be blunt with it, you know, to get the broad anger about it, rather than to think, well, it's just a matter of polishing off the rough edges. Yeah, the the feed the
0: Cakey coalition, and then you demonize that big multinational, you know, maritime coalition, right? Going like these are the guys; these it is that group right there making it more difficult for you to feed your kids.
2: And and I don't think it would be able to be done in a nonprofit. I think it would have to be done in a for-profit thing or like a super PAC okay. or something because because a, a nonprofit wouldn't be able to give money to politicians but super PACs can there you go and uh and the and the other the other side has them so why not
0: that's what I'm saying it, I mean that's if if you're if you're looking for a solution within the political system right you you have to play that game and you have to win the way you win those games right? If you're looking for, you know, outside the system solutions, we can, you know, we can brainstorm those if you want to. Um, I don't know how much traction you get with, you know, sign waving and protesting, um, on this particular issue, because it just, it's just seems too large and you're not going to get a big enough crowd because as you said, you know, most people don't understand it. And those that do understand it a little bit don't see a significant impact on their life enough to, you know, be activated in any significant way.
3: There's a thing about how retailers like uh, shipping things in here from for the stores, let's say the milk, uh, Safeway and Times and and uh, Foodland and all. They say, well, we could be against this, but our competitors face the same problem that we do. So it's not a big as big an issue for us. In other words, yes, I have to pay more for milk, but so does at Safeway. Uh, but the competitor at Foodland and Time face the same problem. so they don't have the same drive yeah. to get rid of this. Whereas, Matt's competition is somebody outside the country. Yeah,
2: yeah. right. I, I uh, talked to the oil an oil representative out of Texas about the Jones Act, and I said, "Hey, can you help us repeal it or reform it?" And he said. Well, we would if you did it only for oil (laughs) because our competitors, you know, we don't want the Jones Act repealed for gas or for all these other ones, you know, just do it for oil. Then we get the advantage.
0: (laughs) And, you know, again, I would say do it right because that would be an incremental step that a few years down the line. Right. Once once you've established that it can be repealed for one industry, even if they're no longer assisting you financially with the cause, right? You can then go to the gas company, and go like, "Hey, we repealed it for the oil with the with a bit of their help. Now, how about you help us as well, and we'll get you know we'll get you back on a competitive level with the
2: oil people." That's a good point. So, it's a crack in the dam.
3: Yeah. Now consider though. Uh, yes, you'll get the oil people in favor of it. But would you? Because you remember that the trucking industry also loves the Jones Act because then instead of shipping uh, up and down the coast and up and down the Mississippi River, um, you know, by barge, um, truckers get the jobs. So they're they're probably as motivated to keep the Jones Act in place because it eliminates their competition. Yeah, but I'm sure and, they're and, worried about automation oil, as well. And they consume a lot more oil than. Than the shipping industry, so the actually the uh there's various factors within the oil industry. Some of them want to send oil to uh, New York, but others want to just sell more to truckers. Yeah, again, it's it's always it's always a tit for tat
0: quid pro quo, right? The, what can you offer them to get them on your side, and then are you willing to offer them that? That's, I mean, that's that's how the back scratching works.
3: I am sure. A there's, pretty big task in a way uh who nobody's going to take that on voluntarily just uh, on their spare time as a hobby it's got to be some kind of um organized i mean like like um, uh, j k was saying you've got to pay somebody to spend full time to do that sort of thing yeah S- start the feed
0: the kekis you know super packed and see what see where you can go with it For, first person on the list of people to hire fundraiser <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah with a commission absolutely how much money can you get us? And you get a small percentage of that, right? Or maybe a large percentage. I don't know. percent. Your salary, your, your commission is 30% of whatever you bring into the organization. The rest of it goes to, you know, run the super pact and hire more people.
3: I, I like to characterize this the way Henry George did. Protectionism in all of its forms does to a nation in peacetime what the enemy would do to us in wartime. And that's essentially what these guys are doing. An enemy during wartime would want to cut off trade and commerce yep. by blocking, blockading. That's what the, uh, the North did to the South during the Civil War. It's what the British and the Germans did to each other in World War I and World War II. It's the first and natural thing to cut off commerce. And yet that is the, the very behavior that these uh, uh, shipping companies have eg- exhibited towards their, their own population, they're behaving as as the enemies of the population by doing this and coming up with oddly enough, um, national security rationalization for damaging the economy,
0: yeah. and and while I agree with you on an intellectual level, right? I don't know I don't know how much path how much how much path gets cleared with that argument with the average person, right? The average person doesn't understand war tactics. Like, they and again, this is like, this is the, the factoids, right? This is what they, what, this is what China would do to us in wartime. And Mattson is doing it to us in peacetime. And they look at you like you're crazy because they, they can't make a connection to that. They're not bright enough intellectually to, to make that connection. And then even less so as MC said, um, to relate that to their personal life and how much damage that's actually causing them. There's just, it's not there. You have, you have to dumb down the message to one that they can understand and relate it in such a way that they get on your side and get activated. And I think we covered a lot of, you know, a lot of ways to go about doing that. Um, I don't want to say that it's easy, right? But I personally, I like to keep things simple, right? And simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. Just means, you know, that it doesn't have to be complicated, right? You, you, you reformulate the message. And you demonize the right people when you're when you're conveying that message to the public. J.K., the
3: the study that uh, came out about the effect on in Hawaii of the Jones Act, what was the cost per person or per family? Uh,
2: It was one thousand seven hundred dollars per family per year.
3: Is that a conservative estimate or a median? Estimate? Oh yeah,
2: that was a real conservative estimate. Uh, but they basically um, <clears throat> walked back, you know, the numbers to get it to to that place. So, so yeah, one thousand seven hundred. Now, so j- going to rich, is that enough to rile people up, or you need you need some uh, language there too?
0: I mean, I th- well, you always need the language, but I think right now you're in you're in a unique situation right, where people are getting excited about $600 and $1,400. And if you, you know, Ah. right, and go like, well, could you use another $1,200 or $1,100? Did you know that they are secretly stealing $1,100 from you every year? What?
2: Yeah, that's a good
3: point. Maybe (sighs) compare it to something that the also see like for example what's the cost of that then uh, oh that, that would what would be the total cost let's say to what is being spent on the rail every year does it like would it be the equivalent where you could say imagine spending this much unnecessarily on what they're spending on the rail or i don't know something comparable Maybe. that they can do people feel the rail i mean i
0: know the rail's a boondoggle but for the average taxpayer in hawaii do they
3: i mean do they care
0: like, I can't yeah, believe I, think, I paid another $400 in state tax for this goddamn rail.
3: What's the cost of the rail per family per year?
2: I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, well, I, I think they're operating at about uh, $300, f- $500 million a year, something like that. And there's a mm-hmm. million people in the state. So $500 per person per year times four is about $2,000. $2, $2, $2, yeah. There you go.
0: So if you can, again, so for the rail, if you can make that relatable, right, to the average, to the average household, the average family, you know, part of the rail, though, is a lot of the poor people there, right, are going to get the benefits of that rail at some point, should it be finished, right? They're, they're going to get that public transportation to use, Um so it, it might be a more difficult case to make simply because they go like, well, you got to finish it, right? So, you know, everyone pays so that a few people can benefit from it. But if, if you're pitching the people who are going to benefit from it, nah, it's harder, you know, eat the rich, tax, tax the rich people more so that I can get my rail.
3: Yeah, you're right. The, the general population is skeptical of the rail, but they haven't turned against it yet. I think uh, broadly there's this feeling that it uh, must be for their long-term benefit otherwise yeah. they wouldn't just keep going at it but I don't but think you, could, I don't think you can make that same case it. for the Jones act they,
2: they could feel it with the rail especially this summer I I predict that they're gonna try to pass a tax for the rail because they don't have the money they, they ran out of money I think they're three billion short at the moment and when that happened in 2017 they passed a tax hike in uh, in a special session and everyone was angry but they said okay, and they and then the politician said, "Don't worry, we'll never do this again. This is the <laughs> oh. last time." So now they're really and they foolishly are... believed him. Yeah,
3: read my lips: no new taxes.
2: <laughs> so now we're in the exact same spot. The rail's three billion short again, and they have to pass another huge tax hike in order to please the feds. Who and the whole rail was sold as. Hey, we're getting free money from the government. Well, how <laughs> how much free money is that? Oh, we're getting 700 million from the feds. And <laughs> all right. So, and, and look, the rail project only cost 2 billion dollars. So, great. Well, now the rail project costs 13 billion dollars, and the same argument is being used. Well, we have to keep going cuz we're getting 700 million from the feds. And if we don't if we don't finish the project, we have to pay that money back. So, and that's where all the tax hikes, you know, that's the justification for all these tax hikes.
0: Reminds me of a vaguely reminds me of a joke is like, I'm I'm in i I'm in the middle of a long article about the sunk cost fallacy. And I just can't
2: stop now. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. But it's like, you know, if if it's worth it, we're talking about $13 billion, if they just um, ended that and paid back 700 million, that would be a drop in the bucket.
0: Yeah, but but then but then what people see, right, is this incomplete rail, that's just an eyesore on the land, right, and what, what are you gonna you gonna spend money to tear it all down, more money, after yeah, decades?
2: Well, it could be a monument to our stupidity.
0: It could be, yeah. <laughs> a, N- a name it after binary. all the politi- Name each pillar after all the politicians who yeah. fucked that up. But I mean, you see what I'm saying, though. Right. Like the the sunk cost fallacy um, is a real thing. And on larger projects like that for the vast majority of people, because they don't, they don't see the cost out of their own pocket necessarily. Right. All they see is the failure and they, you know, you don't want, you don't want to see the failure. So you keep going. But even that, right? if you can tie that into what they're looking for, what their financial situation is, maybe you have a shot. And then the bit,
2: if they can't pass the tax, they're going to go to their, – their one Hail Mary is Joe Biden. Oh, and good grief. Basically, they're going to ask Congress and the feds to – I think Joe Biden said he wants to unveil a $2 trillion um, infrastructure plan. And that's on top of the already gravy train that he's, he's already given out. And so every a lot of people in Hawaii are licking their lips to get that money and and bail out the rail.
0: I can I can imagine. Cuz it's got to come from somewhere and they don't want it to come from their own pocket, right? Don't tax me for it. I've already paid enough of this thing. We were supposed to get the money from the feds.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it'll be interesting if if the tax fails and the feds fail, then the rail fails.
0: And that's a good thing. Right, right. So if we're talking about the rail, you know, make that part of the agenda, right? So something about the future of the children and having money for them and how it's being squandered away in this rail project that isn't going anywhere and won't benefit them at all.
3: Didn't they come across like seventy cracks in the in the rail system itself so that it it's it's even falling apart and it's already passed the warranty so that They have this additional cost in trying to fix it even before it's running.
2: Oh, yeah. There's so many problems right now with the rail. It's all falling apart. It's unwinding in a spectacular slow-motion display of, uh, you know, basically just a a big explosion. And the, the one thing that gets me is they're still saying they're using the ridership projections from before the pandemic. Well, now... Uh, everyone's working from home so and traffic's pretty light yeah so do we still need this rail what's the point
0: <laughs> no the, the the most interesting thing about the rail for me is i remember in high school they were talking about the rail and then i went home from class and i talked to my dad you know about hey we're talking about this rail in high school you know boy they've been talking about that rail since i was in high school and then you guys finally broke ground on it, you know. And now my son's in high school. I still haven't finished that goddamn thing. So we're, we're like three generations of rail problems not going away anytime soon.
3: The irony is that we had 70 miles of railroad, the Oahu Railroad, built privately. that was put out of business because they decided to build all the roads that gave the, the traffic uh, transportation for free as opposed to, you know, paying a fee to ride on the railroad.
2: Oh, that's a really interesting one, KS. Is it's the the rail lobby actually started out as a highway lobby in Hawaii, right? Mm. And and they they uh, created the most expensive highway in the nation per capita, and then when they were done with that, now they're creating the most expensive rail project in the <laughs> world per capita, and then when they're done, and now that that's failing. They've moved the next thing they've moved on to is the most expensive stadium project in America. <laughs> <laughs> the Aloha Stadium. That's the next one. And it's for it's what event?
0: people. You guys have like <laughs> one football team. Well, there's high school games have to be played somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At their field. <laughs> in, in okay. In what other state? Right is our high school sports held at like the central large stadium, right? You, you, if you're a high school basketball team, you have a gym on campus, right? If you're a football team, you have a field on campus. Like that's where that's where people go to practice. And so, if you want to have games, like use the practice field. You don't you don't need the stadium. Well,
2: sell- but the 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 primary reason that the stadium the, the primary reason they want to build the stadium they say is to um, commandeer land around the stadium through eminent domain because they can it, they can always grab land if it's for a public project that that always challenges to that always lose in court um, and so the re, the real reason they want to build this Aloha stadium is to grab a bunch of land around the stadium and then sell it to developers. And, and, uh, and so they're selling the stadium as a housing project. <laughs> really?
0: It's the most ridiculous not, thing I've heard. Not
2: that you, not that people would live in the stadium, but that they would live around the stadium. Okay. And so I mean, it's like, hey, this is a great way to end affordable housing. This is, you know, we, we can end the housing crisis in Hawaii. We we just need to build a stadium. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or just build more houses, right? If there's a housing problem, you don't build a stadium, you build houses.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: I remember years ago in the 80s, the, the stadium was built, you know, Uh, For some price. And they thought we're going to have this sort of clever rust look uh, about it. But the rust didn't stop. The rust kept rusting the infrastructure. So then it cost them twice as much to repair it as it cost originally to build it. And that's the stadium they're going to tear down to, to uh, build another. I remember hearing,
0: I remember hearing the stories about that. It was the rust look because, Hey, it's Hawaii. You have salt air, you know, that's unavoidable, right? Shit just rusts. But what it'll do is it'll coat, it'll be like a thin coat of rust protecting the base metals underneath it. So it'll be, you know, you'll have a little bit of rust, but that's actually a layer of protection. And then no, they just rust through because that's, that's how,
3: you know, that's how chemistry works, man. (laughs) But people bought it, right? The thing is that nobody's ever held accountable because the, the politician (laughs) It, you know, after years uh, is gone, and he's not. It's the taxpayer that holds is left holding the bill. I would say that with since we're to transportation, this is the same thing that happened with regard to the bus system back in May of 1940. The Public Utilities Commission outlawed all competition with the bus, so the the main Honolulu Rapid Transit Bus Company. Had the Rosecrans bus company and seven jitney companies that were offering services that people much preferred at much cheaper rates and much better service, but because the largest bus company didn't want to have any competition, the uh, uh, the government issued cease and desist orders. So we haven't had any competition with the bus, any real competition with the bus for 80 years, and that, of course, has left us with abysmal, you know, bus. Public transportation, which is now losing money hand over fist uh, because it's so in, in, inefficient, and that's that's the alternative <laughs> that they don't want to fix the transportation system by allowing competition. They want to build a railroad, another thing. <laughs> so you say abysmal. Um,
0: I don't catch the bus. I'm not a bus rider. I probably, you know, I've caught the bus probably less than a handful of times in my life. Uh, I don't being here in New Hampshire. And you know, traveling a little bit, well, I've always been a fan of the Hawaii bus system. In comparison, um, it may not be the 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 best, but t- to me, if you are a rider, right, of the bus of public transportation, um, there's a lot worse places than Hawaii. I guess. Well, con- like, the bus system is what- pretty good.
3: What if the ticket for the bus was its true cost, not its subsidized cost? in which case it would be at least five times more? Instead of two dollars, it would be um, uh, ten dollars and uh, per ticket. And sure, if it was ten dollars per ticket, imagine what competitors could do to make your ride so much more uh, comfortable. For one thing, they'd have refreshments, they'd have Wi-Fi, they'd have uh, on-time service, they'd have comfortable, um, lounge seats for everybody to encourage them to come. They'd have convenient sure. parking. They would stop, drop you off wherever you wanted to go, and or wherever they wanted to pick you up. They would divert their routes to fit what the traffic wears. All of that would be possible if you if you uh, charge the real price of your ticket at yeah. the uh, uh,
0: at the entrance. Again, I'm not I'm not going to dispute that. But what I what I am saying is. Uh, like, in a week in Hawaii, I would see more buses on the road than I've seen in the, you know, two and a half, three years that I've been here in New Hampshire.
3: Like, I mean, pu- now,
0: bus transportation and is that, just not a thing.
3: Saying that is like saying when AT&T had the long lines monopoly on telephones, they would say, well, look, I got my phone in a new color. And, it's, and it um, has good, clear connection. And so what is there to complain about? But when they ended the monopoly on the log lines, we all had smartphones, which have thousands of different things that people would never have imagined without the competition. We have no vision for what uh, what the, the, the competitive market could bring to transportation, just like it brought to communication if it was only allowed. So right. yes, I think you're by what you're com- used to, Yes, one monopoly is as good as, uh, maybe better or comparable to another, but competition brings about phenomenal changes.
0: Yeah, again, I'm not, I'm not disputing that part at all. I'm just, my, I'm only suggesting that the Hawaii bus system, comparatively, is actually not that bad. Like it's better
2: than in a lot of places. Where, yeah, and it was, it was actually voted, I think, the number one best bus system in America in like 1992. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, but, but, and it was, I don't so know how good. much
0: better everything else has gotten, but I don't think the bus system in Hawaii has gotten too much, is so much different than it was in 1992. You might have it, air it conditioning. So good,
2: and, they, they, they decided to build a rail system, you know, to, to compete with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, so could I, it be, could it be better through competition? Absolutely. But you know,
2: I apologize. I have to go. Uh, great talking to you guys.
0: All right. Have a good one. Great, thanks for joining.
2: User disconnected from
1: your channel.
3: So you want to do some headlines? Actually, I need to depart, part two. If uh, have we uh, we've done just about our hour, but if if there's a little bit more time, then I mean we can no, do we headlines.
0: we I mean, we probably got a good ten more minutes left. If you if you really okay. want to push it, but if you don't,
3: sure. If you don't got the time, we can cut it. I'm fine to continue.
0: All right. Is there anything more to be said about the Jones Act, the rail, or the bus system then? I'll take that as a no. Headline, Professor argues that Mario Kart could inspire fairer economic system. In a recent paper, environmental researcher Andrew Reed Bell argues that the video game Mario Kart could provide a useful example for how to rethink the global economic and environmental system. Using what he sees as an example of an equitable game in his paper, From Mario Kart to Pro-Poor Environmental Governance, Bell argues in favor of the so-called rubber band effect, in which the gameplay is regulated through the distribution of power-ups of varying potency. Making the case for more effective environmental stewardship is a tall order, but by drawing examples from such a universally popular video game might help communicate the message more succinctly And effectively, Bell says, agriculture was once an escape route from poverty, which is in many instances no longer the case. Bell says, with the race of life already rigged in many cases and the majority of the human population, a model for part of that path may already be laid out through a pro-equity inclusive system that is known across the globe and predates the modern pro-poor literature, Nintendo's Mario Kart, Bell says. For the uninitiated, Mario Kart is a colorful, chaotic racing game in which various Nintendo characters battle for pole position, often deploying a variety of outlandish power-ups from mushrooms which give a player a boost or in a newer versions make them giant and capable of crushing their competitors, to a variety of bananas and colored shells which can stop the opposition in their tracks for a brief period. Those in the lead are typically are granted the less powerful banana peel to trip up their closest competitors while those further back might be gifted a blue shell, with which to target only the race leader from as far back of the course. The thinking behind this game mechanic is that at no point should it be impossible for players to reverse their fortunes. Otherwise, there'd be no fun for anyone, and the game wouldn't have become such a ubiquitous feature of Game Nights the World Over in decades since its initial release in 1992. Some of the in-game power-ups slow down the leaders, while others provide a much-needed boost to get struggling players back on track literally and figuratively. Bell argues that this exact type of rubber band game mechanics, which actively prevents players from pulling too far apart by increasing resistance at the front and drive at the back, is a powerful metaphor for targeted relief in the real world to help the most disadvantaged to compete more effectively. That makes it potentially powerful because the same people who might launch the next social or environmental program are people who can relate to Mario Kart, Bell said, arguing in favor of a more effective and reactive social feedback mechanism. Policies which can provide a balancing feedback that pulls harder at people in the back as as the distance from the front grows would have a more dramatic effect on poverty in the real world, Bell says. He adds that rather than developing real-world analogs for the much-feared Blue Shell or the highly-prized Star of Invincibility, policymakers tend to enact practices which increase the distance between groups, with the widely shared frustrations of a quick game or 20 of Mario Kart providing a powerful, relatable point of reference. Game designer, professor, and game writer uh, Ian Bogost feels that Bell is missing the point to a certain extent. The effect is not just applied to the whole system. But to, but to the system as it relates to the human players specifically. In essence, the human players remain the privileged ones, while other racers, the AI, still largely left behind, so the straight-to-life comparison falls flat. Other issues include the apparent punitive nature of the blue shell, which tracks the race leader and can merely prevent them from coming first when timed correctly. In a real-world analog, such as taxes or restrictions, the redistribution of resources doesn't necessarily redistribute the opportunity to come first, just a marginal increase in the racer's respective place in the field. Economic policies that might attempt to replicate the blue shell merely constitute a temporary inconvenience for the race leader, often to the advantage of the next nearest competitor rather than lasting impact for the rest of the racers or society as a whole. Uh, end of the article. So two quick things with this one, right. To, to highlight what I was talking about at the beginning of this show, uh, this was an article which relates the global economic problems that people face with something simpler that they can understand, right? They, it, it makes the concepts relatable in such a way because most people, at least, you know, my age or younger, so maybe slightly older, um, understand Mario Kart and the implications and i'll throw this question to you ks um what are your thoughts about this um rubber band type of of policies that could lead to more equitable outcomes perhaps is there any is there any
3: positives to this that should be looked into uh, my apologies but i'm i'm not at all a gamer that i understand that the the, the, the Reference to the game that they were referring to, so I was kind of lost about what it oh. what it does and accomplishes.
0: Well, briefly, then uh, the further if you, there's like eight eight players on the course, right? If you are in it's last place,
1: game.
0: it's a racing game. Yep. If you are in last place, you get better power ups that allow you to catch up quicker. If you are in first place, you don't get as many, and you could receive damaging effects. Um, from those behind that allow, that prevent you from getting too far ahead, but also allow other players to catch up. So to relate that to, you know, economic policy, right? Those organizations who somehow have gotten way too far ahead of their competitors, right? If there were ways to enact these rubber band policies would be reined in a bit by these policies. um, And obviously when there was a, a rebuttal on, you know, how damaging those policies should be.
3: Isn't that basically saying like tax and subsidize? Uh, Taxes are to deter and subsidies are to encourage. And uh, well, that that assumes that, I mean, that says that basically everybody's in life to get a score and the score is measured by how much money you got. I I would say that that's none of the government's business to decide what the objective of the game of life is. It is, and a gamer can do that. But that's because people can choose to play that game or not. They like it or they don't like it. But with our lives, the government has no business um, trying to manipulate the outcomes of the game and uh, deciding for us what uh, should be discouraged and what should be encouraged, and even deciding what it is, our purpose in the game. Maybe our purpose isn't at all what the the government designers of the game would I think it should be. So, no, I'd... I'd uh, I would dismiss all that entirely, but I, 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 acknowledge that that's what the government is trying to do with taxes and subsidies.
0: Well, I hear you, but I also think that a lot of times the, the government taxes and subsidies do the opposite, right? They, they, they are lobbied by the more wealthy organizations, right? And their lead is enhanced through government policy. Right. Like, you know, Facebook calling for regulations to keep competitors out of the marketplace. Right. Like Facebook, Facebook, Amazon can absorb the cost of new government regulations. So they advocate for it. And in doing so, prevent their competitors from catching up or even surpassing them. Sure. And if
3: IBM had been successful at that, there would never have been an Apple or a Microsoft because IBM would have uh, blunted their entry into the market.
0: Right. So I think what this article is suggesting is that the opposite should be true, right? That those falling behind should be the ones getting the subsidies and the ones pulling away should be the ones being taxed, not vice versa. going to refer
3: to Friedrich Bastiat's The Seen and the Unseen. They may say that they're helping the the guy who's lagging behind, but their actual behavior, I think, will be doing the opposite. Um, So never trust the politicians and thinking that they will uh, guide us in a positive okay. and benevolent way they will use their powers they will say that they are that to sound popular to get uh, popular approval sure but their actual behavior will be uh, be the opposite so they might advocate for
0: this rubber band policy you know where you don't you you you' the further ahead you get the harder it is to keep pulling away and vice versa uh, they might advocate for that but in reality just uh, continue to pursue the status quo right. All right. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. MC. Thank you very much. All right. Final thoughts?
1: No. Have a good day. All right. Do That'll it. do it for us. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much for listening, yeah.
0: everybody. You guys know where to find us. Anarchistexperience.com on telegram, t.me slash anarchist experience or t.me slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, you can do so through Patreon. Patreon.com slash the anarchistexperience. Thank you very much for listening. i will talk to you all next week. Peace.